We've recently been overwhelmed with devastating headlines of conflict between Hamas and Israel. Sadly, it's anything but new. This episode was filmed prior to current events, but the subject matter is firmly rooted in the same Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On October 23, 1983, almost 300 American and French troops were killed by the largest non-nuclear explosion since World War II, which consisted of 12,000 pounds of TNT set off by a suicide bomber in a truck. The 241 Americans, mostly Marines, were there to help bring peace to flaring tensions that spilled north into neighboring Lebanon. For many, there is much speculation and belief around who is really behind the terrorist activities. For those Marines who survived that day, they asked just one thing. Remember those who were lost because they came in peace. When you, when you were in Beirut in 1983, mm -hmm. uh, what, what was your role there? Um, I was called the ISMO, which is the Information Systems Management Officer. Now, you have to, you know, put it in perspective. This is 1982 and 83. The personal computer just came out in 1981. So computers were still big and bulky. And by today's comparison, mm -hmm. you've got more power on your, on your Apple Watch than you ever had in a mainframe, you know, data center. Amazing. Uh, back then. So what we deployed in the field was a IBM Series 1 that was ruggedized. We called them the green machine. Um, and we deployed them as sort of uh, computerized data entry. So it, in the old days, if you were back at Camp Lejeune and you were a supply officer, you had your supply orders and you'd take a big stack of punch cards to the data center and they would process it and then, you know, three weeks later you get, get your supplies. So they replaced those punch cards with an IBM Series 1, and uh, we deployed those in units uh, afield. So as you know, Marine Corps is an amphibious force in readiness, and uh, the Marine Air Ground Task Force is the concept that um, was the, the norm for deployments. And so you'd go on a med cruise, and then uh, some other group was coming out of the med, and then Med being the Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Uh, there's a Westpac cruise and there's other cruises, but you you know go on Navy amphibious ships and then you do training and deployments with other other militaries, and then when conflicts arise, the Marines you know first to fight, so they were always the, the the first there, and so you deploy with a amphibious air ground task force with a helicopter uh, squadron that's a composite squadron of different types of helicopters a battalion landing team, which is the infantry unit, uh, along with its artillery assets and other combined arms, and then the supply unit. And back then, the smallest size unit was a marine amphibious unit. Mm -hmm. And then you have marine amphibious brigades, and then ultimately the fleet marine force, you have divisions. So a marine amphibious unit would be 2,000 people, maybe, mm -hmm. um, and you have an artillery battery, and you have combined arms, and then you have the MSSG, the MAL Service Support Group. That's what I was in, and so we were the logistics unit of the entire uh, uh, organization. And yeah, and, and to kind of translate that into, um, say, the corporate world as a parallel, you've got sales, which is probably infantry is going to mm -hmm. be the, the best uh, um, uh, parallel. Uh, you've got the you know, the general admin and supply. Which Marketing is, is artillery, right? That's yeah, often the targets. That, that's, that's, I love that. I love that. That's a great way. But, but a lot of people don't think about that, that, yeah. that there are so many parallels between the business world and the military world. It's just the weapons are, uh, of choice are a little different. So supply um, is the lifeblood of a military operation. And, you know, uh, 
inventory control is the lifeblood of a business, right? If you don't have inventory, you can't make your sales. And back in the early days of computers, there were always backlogs, and so you always had that, that situation. But um, the, the tale of Beirut is a tale of two Beiruts, really. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has a long history. So um, there's a book by Chuck Farrer, Farrer uh, who really details his autobiography of, of uh, being a SEAL, but there's a chapter in there about uh, Beirut. And he does a nice, concise, maybe one and a half pages of what happened before we got there and what happened uh, while we were there. And so to put it in a nutshell, um, Beirut's been in the middle of all these different countries all fighting with each other. You got Israel to the south, Syria up in the north, uh, you got proxies working in, 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 in Beirut. And the Palestine Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat's organization, was in Beirut um, and they were launching attacks into, or actually the, the, the Lebanese Christian Falange, I think, they were launching attacks into Israel. Israel wasn't having any of it, and so they started bombing everything in, in, in Beirut. And the Lebanese government put out a call, I don't know if it was to the UN or not, but they put out a call saying, hey, we need some stability here. So the multinational peacekeeping force was formed uh, with US, British, Italian, and French forces uh, all having their sectors of area. And the whole purpose was to create a climate of stability so that the Lebanese government could reestablish its own authority over Lebanon. Well, that never worked. They didn't have much more control over 100 yards from the Lebanese presidential palace. In fact, before we got there, um, the Lebanese president was assassinated with a car bomb. So we were talking about terrorist stuff. Mm -hmm. That was the first use of car bombs that, that uh, we were exposed to. And so one of the Marine... That, that was in 82, if I remember yep. correctly. Yeah. yeah. So one of the Marine amphibious units that was there before we got there um, helped evacuate the PLO. Uh, there, were, there were scenes on TV of, you know, all these Palestinians on uh, Marine Corps deuce and a half shooting their AK-47s up in the air in celebration, going to the port to get on ships to leave, which was just insane. So um, they were shooting off of our vehicles. Yeah, like they, they were being transported to the to the ships. They were the being port. extracted. Right. But celebrating like. They treated it as if they had achieved some victory, like they went into Beirut and they did their thing, and then they and then they they left victorious, which I'm sure roiled our guys pretty pretty much because absolutely you know, it's not our mission. But that continued to be a situation where the Marines were placed in a situation where it's not our mission. We're you know our job is to is to go in and establish a beachhead, and then turn it over to the army and get out. Right, it's first to fight and. I think there's probably a number of factors that I'm not aware of as to why the Marines were selected to be part of this uh, multinational peacekeeping force. It could be because in 1958 the Marines went in uh, under similar circumstances, but much more traditional Marine Corps roles. Uh, or it could be that at that time we started getting into joint ops and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were all co cooperating and that was the beginning of the prepositioning of ships down in Tampa, you know, the, the joint uh, JSOC and all those kinds of Thing. So there's probably a little bit of inter-service cooperation that went into the decision-making to put the Marines in there. But literally, um, you know, everything that the Marines know to do, like establish fortified positions, um, set up sectors of fire, went out the window because the first deployment that we were involved in, so we were 24th MAL, 
was kind of a show the flag operation. So you and th- know. this was this was what year when you when you yeah. got to Beirut, Beirut, what month and year was that? Uh, we deployed August of '82, and we went to the North Atlantic and we did some training, and then we came into you know, normally you do your your changeover and road to Spain. You're coming mm-hmm. out, coming into the Mediterranean, the other groups coming out, but. While we were on our way there, um, is either 30, 32nd mile or 22nd mile, that group was sent into Beirut to evacuate the PLO. So we took over a couple of their training ops in Turkey and some other places, and then we did the changeover in, uh, in uh, Beirut. So I'm gonna guess it was October-ish, November-ish of 82, because I know we spent Thanksgiving in Beirut so it was probably September, October, November, somewhere in there. Of, of 82. Of so 82. You, you go in, you go to Beirut the first time in 82. Yeah. And then you, you guys uh, leave out. So we leave in March, I think. Mm-hmm. I might have the dates wrong. But I know that while we were back home, and what you do typically as a Marine Amphibious Unit is, it's, it's always augmented from other parts of the Fleet Marine Force. So you'll have people from Force Service Support Group who are on their second pump others that are on their first pump and so you sort of replace half the team Mm -hmm. and the resupply and you get a uh, you know get a bunch of other uh, things going on then you 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 head out while we were there the uh the embassy was bombed so this would have been april 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 18th Uh, as a matter of fact i remember april 18th and so we knew going back it was going to be a very different situation prior to that the first tour in beirut was you know we had thanksgiving dinner at the at, at the uh uh, the home of the, uh, the owner of the Pepsi bottling company who was Lebanese, but his wife was American and she had a heart for mm-hmm. us. And so she invited like 50 or a hundred people to come and eat under the tents at their, at the grounds at their place. We went up to Biblos and did some, some Christmas, uh, things, um, very different, you know, Beirut university, young, pretty girls walking around Marines who hadn't seen a girl in a long time, not a good situation, but. We, we, we kept it under control. Bought through it, yeah. And so uh, we leave and we come back, and uh, it's much more of a tense situation. We, And when did you get back? Um, so probably summer, I think, of 83. Okay. Because so the, the, the embassy thing happened in uh, April. So I want to say May or June, okay. somewhere in, right. in there. And... The one thing too is that I always said if you could rearrange the map, everybody would get along. So in in Beirut, you had at least thirteen different factions that all hated each other, and they were all situated where this faction would shoot at this faction, and this faction would shoot at that one, and Israel was down here mixing it all up. And so the worst place you want to be in a military situation is in the Low Country, mm-hmm. mountains all around, and we were at the Beirut airport, the flattest closest to sea level place you could ever be. Um, and we would, uh, I don't know why we did this, but we put our showers on this berm. Probably was a target for us, but uh, we could actually- <laughs> On a berm? Yeah. So, I mean, you're skylighting yourself. Yeah, but we, you know, we were originally sent in there as sort of a show the flag operation. We had no idea that we'd be the targets. And initially we weren't, but we literally could take our binoculars and watch the war going on you know, different factions, tracer fire going up against the, the mountains. And it was like, ooh, you know, let's watch the... I've, I've got a picture of you, uh, you know, in the old uh, MASH style showers, look with binoculars, looking out over the city while you're uh, 
uh, letting the water run on your back. That's exactly that's, that is weird. That's exactly right. So um, we uh, started getting some some incidents where so on our second trip back, I, I'm a uh, a believer, and so I, I had a Bible study, and one of the guys that was in my Bible study was a uh, uh, forward observer, pilot forward observer, out with one of the rifle companies, Captain Mike Oler. And uh, he was hit by a bullet and died uh, out at one of those outposts, probably poked his head up too, too far or whatever. So that was kind of one of our first indications that people were actually shooting at us. And uh, over time, those incidents started happening more and more. Because of all of the different factions around us that were fighting against each other, we became accustomed to the sound of mortar fire and knew the difference between outgoing and incoming. So one of the funny stories from, from there is and if I can use foul language, we had a we had a two-hole outhouse, we had a two-hole shitter in our area, and uh, our shore party officer uh, Leo was up. We had a staff meeting at, at our our op, you know our our place. We the uh, the MSSG was in kind of a bombed-out building that was part of the transportation complex down around the airport, and it was one of those I-shaped buildings. You get a hall, hallway and three three wings off right. of that, and I'll mm -hmm. talk about why that's important later. But we had our staff meetings, and then Leo would come up from uh, from the beach because that's where his, you know, CP was. He was a shore party officer, and so you know we're sitting there taking a shit, reading the paper, passing the paper back and forth, and all of a sudden we're listening to the mortar fire. It was like that sounds like incoming. Oh, that sounds like it's getting closer and closer. And so I said, let's let's wrap things up here. You know, pinch it, <laughs> pinch it off, and get out. And luckily, you know, the, the shitter wasn't hit, but uh, we did have a couple of rounds, you know, mortar rounds that flew into, uh, into our nearby area. So That's a helpless feeling. Well, he always says I saved his life. And then he saved my life later, which I'll tell you about uh, around the bombing. But um, so that's our shared experience, Leo and I. And it, and it began on the, on the crapper. On the crapper. <laughs> Yep. So, okay, so what you're describing here, I, I think it's important for people to understand. Um, you know, the, the size unit, like you said, was around 2,000 people. It's, you're not all in one place. Even though you're in, in the same city, you've, you've got the combat element. You've got the support element. Um, the, you're not all in one location. Right. So in comparison to where the, the bomb actually went off, how far were, were you located from that? Um, if you were to look at a map of the city of Beirut, there's a little road that goes down to the airport. So think of any metropolitan airport, there's a main road that goes in. And that was a fairly straight road. And um, down at the airport, the squadron was there, obviously, because that's where the helicopters would sit. Um, and the airport is right at the beach. So one of the runways, the back of the runway, literally is right at, at the, at the beach, beachhead. So shore party platoon mm -hmm. from MSSG was there, and we had. Fuel. And by shore party, uh, help people understand more of a security uh, element as, as much as anything. Yeah, I mean, force recon would go in and and set up the area, and then shore party would come in and build up the beach, and then mm -hmm. uh, you have different methods of getting the tr the, the forces ashore. Right? Yes, helicopters, uh, Amtrak's off of ships. Interesting experience. Nobody leaves that without throwing up. Um, and then uh, eventually they'll, they'll erect a causeway. And so they can bring the heavy, heavy equipment, you know, across that causeway. 
so Shore Party maintains all of that, and they work very closely with the Seabees, uh, the Navy, you know, beach uh, beach folks, and a lot of construction going on there. Like they'll have fuel bladders that are that are buried in the sand, and so you can fuel up the trucks and everything, and have the logistics supply route for whatever operation you're gonna you're gonna do. Um, and then um, there's a concept called a BLT, Battalion Landing Team. So 1st Battalion, 8 Marines, which will always forever be known as the Beirut Battalion, which incidentally was the unit where the, the people that were killed that were uh, during the, the Afghan uh, evacuation a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Breaks my heart. Anyway, um, so... Uh, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines would have rifle companies and then the BLT, Battalion Landing Team Headquarters, and that's the building that, that went down. So I'm not sure there was 241 people in the building. Um, there were some survivors, so there was a little bit more than that. Let's say 250 uh, people, and then... Not, the not a lot of survivors. Right. So uh, the rest of it was rifle companies out around, so you had a, a, a ring of... Control, which was a rifle company in the south, one uh, in the east, closer to the mountains, the Lebanese uh, library, I think, and maybe another one in the north. Then you had the artillery battery, which was an M1908, 155 um, uh, um, millimeter howitzer right behind us. Um, and then the MSSG was along that same road, but further up. So we were probably 150, 200 yards from the building. And then the Mao headquarters was across this little little plaza from the building. So the Mao headquarters absorbed a lot of shock from the building and, you know, sandbags falling over. And all these were bombed out buildings. So if you remember, uh, Israel pretty much bombed everything in, uh, in Beirut. So a lot of the buildings at the airport were office buildings that were, you know, bombed out. And then we just took over and, and used them for our headquarters and um, different meetings. So the MSSG headquarters is where we had our, you know, supply tents, motor pool. Um, there was combat engineers, EOD technicians, a lot of different comm, and uh, I was also the crypto guy. So a young lieutenant has five different jobs. One of them was managing the crypt, you know, crypto assets. So that was the layout of the uh, Beirut Airport where we were stationed. You said essentially you were about 150 yards from the uh, where the explosion took place. Yep. Before we, our building was there's your, a reason why was. there's a reason why I wasn't there, which is that other miracle that I was alluding to. And and I, I want to get to that here in a minute, but there, there's a there's an before we talk about the morning of. There's an interesting element to this whole thing. And that, like you said, y'all went there. I mean, the, the phrase is they came in peace. Um, you know, that's kind of the moniker that's attached to, um, uh, to the Marine Corps for, the, for that mission. But there was a lot going on there. Uh, you mentioned the Israelis a couple of times. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, there were some pretty high tensions between the Israelis and, and America at that point. H help me understand what was causing those tensions. Because, you know, people now, they look at... Oh, you know, we're, we're allies with, with the Israelis. And it's not that we weren't, yep. but that was a difficult situation. Give the geopolitical. I'm not an expert in that, so I can give you my best understanding or recollection of it. Yeah, as, as somebody on the ground there at that time. I think we were struggling with our identity with Israel in, in the Middle East. I mean, Israel's a young country, right? It was formed in 1948. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the, the, there was the Palestinian Intifada. They were rebelling against the Israel for taking over territory, and that's still in dispute you know, in, in the West Bank and some of those areas. And so I think we as a nation straddled that line a little bit and sometimes had to smack Israel around a little bit and sometimes had to smack uh, the Palestinians. There was, you remember Jimmy Carter had that big handshake with, uh, was it Menachem Begin or was it one of the Israel Israeli leaders? Mm -hmm. and, I, uh, I do Yasser remember. Arafat. So yep. that was prior to Reagan taking over and I think there was maybe some backlash, you know, from that. And Israel was not the best player in that, in that area. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was tensions. And then uh, in terms of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, they were in the southern part of the airport complex. And there were uh, some altercations that didn't result in anybody getting hurt, but there were some push, push and pull between our, our forces, that rifle company down there, and, uh, and, and the Israelis. So did you guys feel like you were just in the middle of a beehive? I mean, there, you, you've got Hezbollah going on, you, um, you've got the, 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 the Shia uh, element, the Israeli Defense Force, the, the French were there on your side, but there's always been a tension there. What was Remember the, I said there was like 13 different factions, yeah. right? So it was the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine. There were the Phalangists. There were the uh, Lebanese army who couldn't control anything. And all these different people were fighting against each other. And like I said, if you could just rearrange the map, everybody might get along. But uh, all that stuff was happening around us. And I think, you know, I can't speak for our leaders. There's actually a good uh, paper or book that's, that was written by General Al Gray and uh Colonel uh, Tim Garrity, where they kind of went through that fact-finding and what was what, what are the lessons learned. And there were a lot of lessons learned there. Um, what I remember is the rules of engagement just pissed everybody off. Like you can't carry around, uh, you, you, you can't chamber around, you can't even carry a loaded magazine in your gun, you know, in some cases. And that that got a little bit better as, as the second trip around. But uh, See, I'll push back on the lessons learned. Because I think there's a lot of lessons we could have learned that we haven't. Yeah, we've repeated mistakes. Uh, you look at the Kobar towers in '93, or was it '93? I believe in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, a lot of the things. There were a lot of parallels between that and what happened in Beirut. Yeah, so there are lessons I agree we could have learned, not to split hairs, but you know, I, I and that's something I want to ask you about at some point. It, it's got to upset you that these things keep happening. They shouldn't happen, based on 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 your experience. Yeah, I mean, just look at that withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know. Another good example. Yeah. And, you know, all of us that live through Beirut are like, oh, here it goes again. One eight, you know, suffers suffers at the hands of bad decisions. So, you know, I don't want to disparage uh, leaders that have a tough job to do, but I think that uh, we should have pushed back on the mission. But, you know, we're, we serve at the pleasure of the president, right? So we're going to we're going to do the mission. But I think that uh, there's a lot of retrospect in that paper, um, you know, where they said we would have done things differently then. Um, I think, too, though, now we've had two protracted wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the Marine Corps has gotten away from its amphibious mission. And I've heard some art read some articles where we're looking to get back to that. Um, so I think they're calling it the literal forces, you know, serving on literal ships and kind of gearing up for the... South China Sea stuff that's going on. So right. the force plan for 2030 is going to be a little bit more like the old Marine Corps that um, 
you know, we're an amphibious force in readiness and you go in, you go out and you move on. Occupation is not our job in, in, in the Marine Corps. And I think it started to feel like occupation to the point where, uh, and I'll, I'll throw out another funny name. So Gunnar Allen, Chief Warrant Officer, for those of you that don't know, chief warrant officers are between enlisted and officers, and they sort of don't take shit from any rank. That is true. And so uh, Gunnar Allen uh, used to, he was the leader of our combat engineer group, and uh, when he was fortifying positions, he maximum fortified those positions, and he used to call it Camp Masada, you know, because uh, he was uh, Jewish, and so he said, this is Camp Masada, and they, they made him defortify some of those things because it would have the appearance of an occupation force. So there was some some discussions back and forth about that. But. Well, and I think that's an interesting point because uh, obviously given the year, given how long uh, it takes to become a gunner, he was obviously well-versed in what happened in Vietnam because oh, yeah. of his own personal experience. Yeah. So not drawing, you know, we we're talking about some leadership things earlier, not drawing on the experience of those tactical leaders who have that knowledge and experience yep. is a fallacy. I mean, why on earth we wouldn't do that, I don't know. So not to interrupt you, but... but Yeah, and, you know, we're in a world now where decisions can be made from high levels on right down to the, to the Marine on the ground, you know, through a headset. We didn't have that then. Um, and so the filtering process on how decisions get made is kind of a mystery, you know, looking back on it. Uh, General Al Gray, at that time, was the commanding general of uh, the 2nd Marine Division, just turned 95 this year. I hope he's going to be there at the thing because I love that man. But he certainly had the lessons learned from Vietnam. And then PX Kelly, obviously, was our uh, commandant at the time, member of the Joint Chiefs. And so how the decisions were made to put the Marines in harm's way in a way that is not the, the way the Marines operate still isn't very clear to me. I'm sure that if I went back and reread some of those books and papers, I'd, I'd get a clearer picture. You know, at my level, we were just lieutenants doing our job. So it was, um, you know, a mission that we were sent there to do. So the, the job you were doing, um, October 23rd, 6.30 a.m., yep. it's a Sunday. Your duty station was 150 yards away from where the truck was driven to and exploded. Where were you though at that point? So let me take you back maybe 12 hours prior to that. So I mentioned that as a young lieutenant, you've got five or six different jobs. One of those jobs was managing all the classified materials, you know, code books and things like that. If the, if the radios go down, you gotta go to the old fashioned, you know, code things. So there's little books of paper that have cryptographic codes on it. And so I had those stored in a safe we had had, by that time, at least three or four different mouths that were in there leaving equipment behind. And you only have so much uh, space on ships to take it all home. So we started to have to plan for, because Reagan was running out of time for, uh, I forget what it's called, not Status of Forces Agreement, but there was another name for it. Mm -hmm. And at the end, at the expiration of that, you either have to de declare war or get out. Right. So we were planning for the withdrawal of uh, U.S. military forces from Beirut, and we had to start figuring out where to put the stuff. So I was sent back to the ship to start looking for where we could put our safes of classified material and work with the logistics planners, and there's always Marines that are uh, attached to the ship and, and you know, big, big planograms for, for, the, uh, for the ship there. So I was sent 
the night before, and then Leo, the guy whose life I saved on the shitter, saved my life by radioing and saying, you can't come to the beach tonight because uh, we're taking artillery fire. What had happened was the Israeli Defense Forces pulled back, and there was a power vacuum, and that power vacuum was filled with artillery shells back and forth with each other, and uh, so the beach was getting shelled, and so, you know, we suspended uh, operations to get me back um, ashore. So I literally went to sleep on the ship and woke up the next morning to general quarters and helicopters flying uh, stretchers into, into the area. What's miraculous about that is I would have been in the building uh, because Sunday morning we let everybody sleep an hour later. Uh, so instead of getting up at 6, you get up at 7. Bombing happened at 6.20. But the cooks, uh, there's a mess hall there, and the cooks all had to go earlier anyway because to make food for everybody. And so one of my things I would do on a Sunday morning is get up and go, you know, shoot the shit with these people because they're doing a hard job. And I would have been in the building uh, or in the, the mess hall right next to the building um, at that time. But I wasn't because I was on the ship. So... I felt very fortunate, and uh, that kind of plays out in my life after that in terms of what do I do with that? Why was I spared? What do I do with that? And we can we can talk about that. But so I arrive, and uh, you know it's just casually casualty control mode. And if you remember, I described our building when, as when, when you say you arrive, you're talking about on site after the bombing. Yep, flew in a helicopter okay. with a bunch of stretchers and a bunch of medics. But before before we get there, though, I, I want you're on ship yep. when the bomb goes off. Um, obviously, people could hear, feel it mm -hmm. all around uh, uh, the city. Uh, I don't know how far offshore you were, but I'm assuming you couldn't hear it based on being below deck. Just over the horizon, but as we were getting in the helicopters, not soon after we left the ship, you could see the plume of smoke. Okay, so you, you couldn't see the plume of smoke from the ship until you got a little bit airborne, so yeah. you were off over the horizon. So describe what's going through your, your mind and your gut as you're in the back of this helicopter now, I mean it's it's real now. There's, yep. we know that that people are coming after us because by this time you've figured out it was the, uh, the barracks, right? Yeah. Um, you know, as soon as we got on board the the helicopters, the word had come through that this was you know the the, the barracks had gone down, and we knew roughly how many people were there, so they were calling for you know the medical assets and the stretchers and all that. Um, yeah, it was pretty tense, although. You know, you always hear people say you just rely on your training, right? Uh, nobody trains for a disaster like that, but you do rely on just your general training. And so it was very quickly in just just action mode. Um, but we knew, you know, shit was already getting real because we were getting pot shots taken at, uh, taken at us before this happened and there was some harassment fire in a couple of places. And so, you know, we knew that... Uh, we were going into a pretty tense situation, kind of like what you hear people talk about with 9-11, right? You know, um, uh, running through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, knowing that you're going into an area that's, that's, that's got a lot, of, a lot of danger. So uh, that's what we did. So I, I flew in. I quickly reported to uh, uh, MSSG, and kind of at that point, you're a servant leader. Like, where can I help? What, what can I do? Um, the... Helicopters would always come in to, uh, down at the airport, there was a hangar, and that's where the, the squadron was. And then there was a road that goes up to the MSSG and up to the MAL. And one of my fellow lieutenants was on a, on a Jeep with a stretcher on it, with a body going, going up there. And so I hopped a ride there. 
the scene was is pretty. Is that the first time you'd seen any kind of yeah, yeah. battle the, fallout? The, the scene was pretty crazy. Um, our building was used as a triage center. So if you remember, I, I said there were three wings and a, and a central hallway. That was the triage center. So you had uh, people that were uh, able to be treated and just waiting for a ride out to the hospital ship or to the, you know, eventually get to Germany. Um, and then people that weren't going to make it and people that were kind of, we'll call them walking wounded. So I don't remember to this day um, the groans and the cries and the, you know, the, uh, the sounds of that. But there were, because I've read people talk about it. What I remember is the smells, which is odd, but there is a certain smell uh, around death. And I had experienced it uh, in junior high school uh, because there was a mid-air collision right over our development where we lived. My dad was a doctor, so you know we, we, we jumped in the car with his medical bag and we went to go see it. And this was a mid-air collision of a twin-engine plane with four people and a little Cessna and nobody survived and, you know, body parts. And so I've seen that and I've smelled it. So it was familiar. Um, took you right back to that. Yeah, took me back to that. And there's two smells that come from that. One is as bodies start to decompose, there's that smell, which is pretty, pretty awful. But prior to that, there's kind of a sweet smell. And I don't know if it's the gases leaving the body. I don't know what it is, but there was kind of a sweet smell. And it was very surreal. surreal. Because if you look down the road from the MSSG down to the building, and if you remember, there's a, there's a little road, the Mao headquarters was here, the building was over here. Um, everything, and I think I have pictures of it, everything, all the trees were littered with gray dust and pieces of, uh, pieces of uh, clothing, uh, pieces of uh, sleeping bags, cots, you know, everything just strewn about. So it looked like a hellscape. Um, and so that's what we were walking into. Um, and one of the things that I ended up doing, I mean, it was basically it was three days of no sleep and just pulling bodies out. Um, you know, we had the thing is if you, if you find a, a person and you pull them out and, and they're dead or everybody stops and pays respect to them and then you, and you, you, uh, you continue on. But there was one occasion where uh, I, I grabbed a sergeant and uh, we went into the basement of the building because um, by then we were dousing water on, on the building. So there was less dust and putting out fires. The water was going down to the basement where the lithium batteries were stored. And lithium batteries tend to burst into flames when they get wet. So we needed to get those batteries out. And while we were getting the batteries out, we were also pulling out blocks of C4. And so we got them off to a safe position. So I'm, you know, just sort of contemplating my life decisions at this point, saying I'm, <laughs> I'm in a basement with water falling all around me, which uh, the building could still collapse, and I'm pulling out, you know, C4 explosives and and lithium batteries that can get wet and yeah. and oh my gosh. So it's just a little blip in the in the in the whole scheme of things, but it's like you, you find yourself in those situations, and you just rely on your training, and you kind of like don't think about it because. If you did think about it, you'd say, am I orphaning my, I didn't have kids at the time, but am I, am I leaving a family behind to pull some batteries out of a basement? Well, but you, you, you talked about you rely on your training. You also said, though, and, and I think very poignantly, that you don't really train for 
an event like that. We right. train for, for catastrophe, we train for chaos and friction, and yeah. fog of war, but how did everybody pull together there? I mean, do, do, you, do you have any memories of, of, of just how that all went down? I don't remember anybody standing around in shock trying to figure out what do I do next. It just felt very natural. Like our leaders uh, would, would say, we need this done over here. We need that done over here. Let's get this team together. Let's go, go do that. It was just very seamless to me, it seemed. I'm sure there was chaos and there was a little bit of indecision there, but you know everybody was kind of focused on that mission to the point where we didn't really focus on the fact that that road that I was telling you about between the Mao and the, and the BLT, there was small ar harassment, small arms fire coming our way mm -hmm. there. Um, not even sure where it was from, but uh, you know, we just pressed on and, uh, and, and did that. Yeah, that, that was actually one of the things that, that was popping into my head. You know, when you're coming in on the helicopter, the first, first thought that's crossing my mind is the vulnerability there. I mean, right. your heightened awareness because they just hit us with, you know, they just got our attention. Uh, there's yeah. chaos. Now is the perfect time to follow up, you know, from an infantry standpoint um, to exploit your gains. And it doesn't sound like that happened in any, in any grand scale. But at the same time, the whole idea of uh, suicide bombings, that was very new. That was one yeah. of the first uh, high-level suicide bombings that happened against uh, America. Well, they had a second bombing planned that day, and they did. So they executed the uh, French paratroopers, I think, were uh, just up the, the highway or just up the road. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they did that. But suicide bombers are not, suicide bombings are not a well-coordinated effort. So there wasn't like, uh, you know, a base of fire that would uh, do, a, do an echelon and, and move in, right? You got one guy in a Mercedes truck loaded with, with explosives, and then... Uh, you know, so I, I think the the risk of them following up with shooting some helicopters out of the sky was probably not high, but you know, certainly the helicopters were doing evasive maneuvers and and all of that. But yeah, it was definitely heightened awareness. Then afterwards, there were a few other incidents. Like there was one, uh, our building got hit with a mortar round on the roof. Like ten seconds after I left the roof, I was the officer of the day, so I was checking the guard posts up there and. Um, the, it was a small mortar, and it went through the roof. And a couple of a couple of uh, Marines were in the in their sleeping quarters right below it, but it didn't kill anybody. So uh, I think so. Literally ten seconds, you come off the roof and boom. Literally came down the steps like we had a, a like a fire escape ladder that mm -hmm. went down the side of the building, and uh, it was my turn to go check check the the the, uh, the 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 posts, and then I came back down, and the mortar hits and. You know, then chaos ensues. And th also, this, this was after the uh, the bombing. Yeah, I'm not sure how long after, but it was definitely after. It okay. was not because uh, we were our awareness was heightened, certainly. Um, we also had spent a lot of time, you know, running to the to the uh, to the basement. Like you'd get you'd get warnings of uh, some artillery getting too close, and then uh, somebody would ring the bell, and then we'd all just run down to the basement. And uh, so there was already that sort of cadence of uh, stuff happens and then you all take cover and then uh, coast is clear and you, you come back up and you resume your activities. Cause Who's we firing not, the artillery? Uh, everybody was firing against each other, right? So and initially they were not firing anything at us. And so you had... Uh, These are short rounds or... or 
Bad coordinates. Yeah, we had Katusha rockets. They're not very accurate. Um, we had uh, RPGs. Certainly, those were were, were fired from from people with uh, you know from the shoulder. Uh, mortars of different types. More mortars than artillery. Okay, that makes uh, that makes sense. But they're not terribly accurate either. So you'd get stray rounds coming in. But then you know, we would we would learn. We had a fairly well coordinated. Uh, the multinational force would coordinate with each other. And we always sent an officer for two-day two-day rotation up at the Lebanese presidential palace to be right there on a radio net along with the Italians, the Brits, the French, um, and the Lebanese, so that if things were happening in one sector, we learned about it. Things were happening in another sector. Oh, they were seeing that this this group was firing against that group, and then we could figure that it you know things were getting closer to us. It was getting more dangerous. So I think we probably had word. You know, a lot of times when we had an advanced notice of some fire coming in, it wasn't being aimed at us, but we were going to take some stray fire. So, you know, all in all, there was probably one or two or three incidents at the most of, of that. It was mostly happening, you know, out, away from us. So with everything you experienced, and I, and I thought it was very interesting that you said you don't remember any of the sounds, you remember the smells. Yeah. Um, decisions you made that put you in a position to still be here today, decisions that others made that put you in position to be here today. What do you take away from, I mean, we can talk about, you know, Beirut and we can talk about all the, the, uh, the geopolitical fallout from it and the carryover, but how has it changed Guy? Well, I talked about it before about um, in my commercial life, you know, I have this perspective that nobody's got the defibrillator pads out. Nobody's having a heart attack. Uh, even though I, I support a pharmaceutical company that is saving lives, you know, patient's not on the table, right? Or, um, you know, I'm not being shot at. So I tend to have a perspective of keeping things, uh, keeping things in, in perspective and focusing on what's important, you know, not, not the minor stuff. And so for me, the way I processed all of that was, I've been in worse situations, this too shall pass. I also, as a, as a believer in, in God, believe that I'm never put in a situation that I'm not prepared for. And I've always felt like my life progression has been one where everything I do has always been built on, built on something I've done before. So all my career changes and job changes have been a building process. Mm -hmm. So. That's the kind of what I took away from that is just that learning experience of being flexible, um, not not worrying about the small stuff, and then focusing on people, right? Because uh, our lives are perishable assets. We never know how much time we have. And so I try as much as possible to invest in people. That's why I always think about my um, business transactional life as a way to be involved with people and to get to know them. I want to get better. I want to be like my uh, commanding officer who remembers names from 1976. I, I need to learn from that guy. He's really good at it. I, I tend to, in my older age, forget some things, but uh, the more I think about things and reconnect with that past, it gives me the ability to, to then be more relevant in my, my conversations with people. But he's probably somewhere saying, you know, I wish I could be more like Guy and, uh, and not sweat the small stuff. He did pay me a compliment one time. He said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I've really been enjoying watching you progress in your life. And it's like, wow, that's coming from a guy who's, who I, I revere highly. So I take that as 
a marching order to continue to be better. Well, as, as you know, carry the load is all about um, making sure that we honor those who, who put down their lives so that others could have uh, the lives, the lives that we have. So yeah. uh, um, who are you carrying with you? Um, three ways to answer that. One is sort of trite, but uh, our mutual friend Jake Schick from uh, One Tribe Foundation always says uh, all of them. But then if I break that down, it's the 241 that perished uh, on that day in Beirut. And then if I get more specific, it was Captain Oler, who I had a, at least a personal connection with through the Bible study. And then um, Staff Sergeant Alan Seufert, who was kind of one of the first people we lost out of our unit. Uh, prior to the bombing, it was uh, an incident that occurred. He was an EOD technician, but he got shot um, doing his job. And he's from Nashua, New Hampshire. And, you know, my commanding officer had to write that letter home. Uh, so I think of those people and I think of the community around them. Um, I also am very interested to see at this 40th remembrance who's going to carry the torch after because we're all getting older and some of our senior commanders are really getting older. And so there needs to be people from the generation of the families of the people that, that uh, survived Beirut or the families of the people that fell that need to sort of carry that torch. Our, our Beirut Veterans Organization slogan is, our duty is to remember. And I think, you know, when you think of remembering, it's a passive thing, I remember it, but there's also, you remember that song, uh, Give My Regards to Broadway, Remember Me to Herald Square? That's an active thing of remembrance, right? So yes. remembering Beirut to the people that need to hear uh, Beirut, and that's what hopefully this experience has been about. And we always talk about as an organization the importance of remembering those and, and honoring them. If you had a message to society as far as the importance of remembering something like Beirut, it didn't didn't change the world. Yep. It it didn't didn't even necessarily impact the world outside of the people that, that were there. Why is it so important for the American society? remember events like Beirut? A lot of layers to that. Um, one is that unfortunately we had an opportunity to nip things in the bud after that happened. Um, there was a mission that was supposed to retaliate for the, the attack. We were going to um, do an airstrike against the training base that created the guy who did, did the, uh, the bombing. And at the last minute, according to a 60 Minutes uh, interview, Casper uh, Weinberger pulled out. Reagan was, he went to bed. It was going to happen. I actually was at that radio net up in, the, up in the presidential palace. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that there was an operation about to happen because we needed to make sure that our partners weren't in the area. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was called off. Didn't know why until years later, and I watched the 60 Minutes episode. So I think, um, you know, when there's indecision or we worry about inflaming um, sentiments abroad, sometimes we have to do the hard thing and they didn't do the hard thing that night. And there are people, mm -hmm. in fact, at the 35th, 30th, uh, General Gray said, uh, we, we, we could have, should have bombed them back to the Bekaa Valley. We wouldn't have had Osama bin Laden if we hadn't done that. Whether that's true, whether you can connect the dots there, I don't know. But I think that uh, when we have an opportunity to uh, make those decisions, we have to make the hard decisions. So that's, that's a lesson for the leaders, for me and for the people that are around us. It's just taking that experience and, and, and building on it and making our lives better. We still lose one person or more uh, 
every time I go back for a reunion. So I'm very passionate about Jake's organization and investing in uh, modalities that can help people with uh, suicide. So, you know, I'm going to devote the rest of my volunteer time to those causes. And hopefully others will do the same. Guy, I could sit here and talk to you about this and, and all the, the, the lessons and the geopolitical fallout. I could sit here and talk to you about that all day, but I, I got to give you some of your day back. But man, I, I really, really appreciate the time. And um, I am, I'm, I'm glad we came across our, you know, one another's paths because this, is, this has really forced me to go back and remember it in a different way. Well, thanks for giving us the us, I say collectively us, the Beirut veterans, the opportunity to share that story. And hopefully there'll be more things coming out uh, soon that will uh, highlight that. And hopefully the next generation will take it forward from here. Please keep me informed. All right. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. If this resonated with you in the least, please subscribe and like, and please, please, please share it with at least one person. These are the stories that make us uniquely American. These are the stories that preserve the integrity of our nation.